Welcome back to the Love Your Bod Pod. I'm your host. I'm Kara Corinne Sofeli, and I am your host. I am a podcaster, a health coach, and on this podcast, Love Your Bod Pod, we talk all about healing your relationship with food and your body and transitioning into intuitive eating, body wisdom, and food freedom. And I just want to say thank you to you for listening whether you're a new listener or a repeat listener, this podcast is for you and without you, I wouldn't be doing it. So thank you so much for listening and I truly hope that it helps you. I also want to say happy new year because this podcast is going live on January 1st, 2020. Holy crap. I, um, have lots of mixed feelings about the fact that it's a new decade. I can't believe how fast time seems to go by these days at this point in my life. I'm also excited. I really love the way the new year feels. It kind of feels like an opportunity to reflect and to set new intentions moving forward. That said, just this morning, I like opened up my Facebook app and I saw a couple of diet culture ads and people in stories were talking about getting back on track and about how they lost weight. And I was really reminded of how this time of year diet culture is ferociously trying to shame us into going on a diet to lose weight, but selling it and packaging it to us like it's empowerment. So if you are someone that's been witnessing and hearing all of the diet talk and the weight loss talk and the getting back on the track types of things that are very common and full force this time of year, I just want to let you know that you're not alone in being triggered by that stuff. You're not alone in wanting to leave behind diet culture and forge a new path for yourself and your relationship with food. And I want to remind you that just because other people might be talking about diet culture and engaging in it doesn't mean that you have to. And you have every right to ask people to not talk about that stuff or to change the subject or to walk away. I want to remind you that you do not have to earn or make up for anything you ate over the holidays. And you do not have to get back on track or get back on the wagon. In fact, forge a new path where there isn't a wagon to fall off of. Okay, today... This podcast interview is with Jane Meyer. Jane Meyer is someone that I have known for two years now, maybe a little over two years. And she is someone who I would consider my mentor and one of my spiritual teachers. And I went to Peru in November of 2018 and I went to one of her retreats. It was a women's retreat and we drank ayahuasca. And I haven't really talked much about my experience with plant medicine on the podcast, although it's a really important sacred part of my life. And I talk a little bit more about it in this episode with Jane, which I'm very excited about. Talking more about my spirituality and my plant medicine work is something that I see for myself in the future on this podcast and in my health coaching business and in my career. I want to be more open about it and I want to share it because it's made such a difference for me. And I, I think that it can also make a difference for some of you that are listening if it's something that you're drawn to. So Jane is a shamanic healer and sound artist who has studied with indigenous wisdom keepers in the mountains of Peru. 
the High Amazon, and the Heathers of Ireland, alongside various lineages of devoted teachers and healers in the Western world. For many years, spirit called to her from a well of deep emotional and physical pain that begged her to find a way to reconnect to her true self. Her own pathway to healing informs all of the work she offers. She works with sound, plant, energy medicine, and body consciousness expansion alongside her own gifts of sight, sound, feeling, and knowing to guide her. She is here to help us remember, integrate, and embody the wholeness of our true being. She offers healing sessions, ceremony, poetry, and sound medicine in the United States, as well as retreats here and abroad. So to learn more, um, you can visit janeislistening.com, which she talks about at the end. And she does have a retreat coming up in Scotland in May 2020. And she also has um, music on SoundCloud if you want to check her out there. So Jane is someone who I know, love, and trust. I'm really excited for this conversation. She struggled with an eating disorder, with drug and alcohol addiction. And she found her path to healing through spirituality, plant plant medicine, and a connection to spirit or source of the universe or God or the divine, however you choose to see it and call it is awesome for you in your own life. And um, I'm really excited that we're having this type of conversation on the podcast. Um, I would say that the conversation with Caitlin Pasternak, the podcast interview with her is probably the closest um, type of conversation, but we bring a lot of new things to the table. We talk about her path to healing, recovery, We talk about plant medicine, we talk about trauma, we talk about ancestral healing, and um, we talk about how plant medicine is medicine, and it's not like party drugs, it's not like, you know, um, just like partying, et cetera, et cetera. So we talk about that as well, because sometimes there's stigma attached to um, using psychedelics and plant medicines as a form of medicine, so we actually talk about that as well. So listen with an open mind and I hope that you love Jane and that you get a lot out of this interview and happy, happy, happy new year. I love you. And, um, let's dive in. Hello, Jane. Welcome to the love your body. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks, Kara. It's super awesome to be here with you. Yeah. So let's dive right in. Tell me about your relationship with food and your body growing up. (sighs) Um, I had a really, well, until I hit, until I hit about 10 or 11 years old, I think I had a pretty normal relationship to, to food in my body. Um, I, I was really active as a child. And when I thought about my body as a child, it was a lot related to like sports and like running and, um, all of those kinds of things that you think about when you think about like a young girl with a lot of energy and dancing and all that. Um, as I got a little bit older, um, I was I went through a period of time where a lot of my my childhood felt really out of control to me, and where there was like some some violence and anger. And I really noticed that as that was happening, as I was entering the later like the early stages of puberty, and my body ultimately really started to become a battlefield and a source of a lot of shame and um, just a lot of places for violence. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, my gosh, so many, I think honestly, if I had to think about ultimately the greatest teacher I've had, um, 
in this lifetime, it's been my physical body and all of the things that I've learned about how to be in relationship to her in a loving way <laughs> is ultimately how I've learned to be in relationship to the rest of life. But that was a hard, long journey to get to that place. Yeah. And when you're saying violence about your body and it being a, a battleground, do you want to share what you mean by that? Like, like actually, what does that mean? And then mm -hmm. we can go into some of the lessons your body has taught you. Cause I think yeah, it's sure. a really powerful topic yeah. for us. Mm. I think even from, from a young age, I mean, and when I say young, I mean, again, like starting around 10, um, I had this real sense that my body needed to be, or there was a lot of like perfectionism and control that lived inside of me. And I had a sense that my body needed to look and be a certain way in order for me to be worthy. And in order for me to just have the right to breathe and exist and be human. Um, and even before I started experiencing an eating disorder or participating in an eating disorder, I um, had a lot of like rage towards my own body and even things like when my hair didn't look right at like 10 or 11 years old, there was a lot of rage that would arise out of my system um, in order to kind of control that. And because of the way my, um, my family communicated with some physical interactions like physical violence, um, there was uh, a way that the body was a place to, to like be hurt. That I learned from a young age that when we want to hurt someone, we hurt their body. And I think ultimately over time, I internalized that. Um, and then having gone through some sexual abuse in my, in my like early teen years, um, there was just a real internalization of like the misuse, the mistreatment, the violence towards the body as a way of control. And, um, and so by the time I started having an eating disorder when I was like 12 or 13, it was just a really natural way of relating to my physical body, like restrict food, control, hurt yourself, cut yourself, um, whatever means necessary in order to get the, the physical body to stay in line. Mm -hmm. yeah. And do you, you had said internalization. Do you feel like you internalize the violence from being in your, your family, being in your household, and then you were turning it on yourself? Or do you yes. feel like your eating disorder was a coping mechanism or maybe? Well, interesting. I think it's both, right? I think it's like, um, in some ways the eating disorder, and I had a bulimia for many years, in some ways, the bulimia, because of the endorphins that it releases and the way that it pushes energy through the energy body, it was a real release. And there was a really strong feeling of relief that came from it. But at the same time, it actually is a huge act of control and violence against the body, right? Forcing the body to, to engage in a manner of energy that it doesn't want to engage in um, was a type or a way or an energetic way of relating to the physical form that I learned. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually feel the same way I had bulimia too. And I felt like when I look at my eating disorder as a metaphor of like stuffing down all the things that I didn't know how to deal with, 
mm-hmm. and then throwing up to release the pressure of everything that I was dealing with. Exactly. And it was yeah. just a way to deal. Right. Because we don't know, we haven't, we hadn't, or I hadn't, or you hadn't at that age developed the capacity to be with in full presence and power, the level of trauma, the level of out of control, the level of anger, the level of violence that was in front of us. And so it's like this weird tick that I think the body consciousness creates to suppress and release, suppress and release, because it doesn't know how to be with it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So in that sense, it becomes the coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Which is like, ulti- like, but let me just like add this into because I think this is really important. Ultimately, that's also what physical violence is, right? That's also what sexual abuse is. It's a way that the person who is like, let's say someone is physically violent with their sibling or their partner or their child. It's the same thing (laughs) as the eating disorder. It's a way that that person is experiencing energy that it doesn't know how to do or how to be with. And so it suppresses rage, suppresses rage, suppresses rage, and then it acts out as a way to dispel the energy. And so part of what I have learned over the last, you know, however many years of my life is there may be different ways that we all do that weird thing, (laughs) that addiction, that rage, that violence, that eating disorder, that drinking, it's all um, the same thing. It's just different manifestations of it. And that the healing journey for me has really been, and that I support others with is like, how do we learn and grow our consciousness and our body's capacity to be with the sensations and the fears and the experiences so that we don't have to repress and project and expel that anger towards ourselves or to other, to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I completely agree with you. And I think that that's a really important lesson, I guess, so to speak, about when you see, if you yourself are dealing with an eating disorder or someone you know, or any of the other things that you mentioned, physical abuse, sexual abuse, violence, rage, to really look at it from that lens of like, okay, this is the physical manifestation of some other mental, emotional, energetic, repressed thing. Is thing the right word? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes hard to name it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what are some of the other lessons you talked about? Your life, your body being the greatest teacher. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Tell us more. Well, because of because it's kind of like my relationship to my body was always so strained that it, it's like if I was going to live, because honestly, there were many times in my life that I wasn't sure that I was going to live, that I had the capacity to heal and to move through to the next version of myself, that like I had to to learn how to relate to her differently in order to survive. Because left to the devices of those addictions, um, every single one of them, because after I had an eating disorder, I also went into serious drug abuse and alcoholism. And, and then as I've done more healing work, you get into the deeper layers of the suicidal ideation and all of these pieces that if I, if I didn't learn how to relate to her in a life affirming way, that I was just going to die. 
Mm-hmm. So it was like, I feel like she, me, whatever you want to call it, the physical manifestation of me was like, you have to learn how to relate to me with love or else we're going to die. Mm. So, like, I think, um, as I was in some of the deeper, more challenging parts of the healing journey, which ironically were like far after I had given up the eating disorder, far after I was sober, like many years after, then I actually had to go and, and like excavate and heal and hold like the deepest parts, the seeds of those original behaviors and addictions. Um, I really just continued to see over and over like how I related to my body with violence. And as you get into like, more fine ways of thinking about it. It's like, what are the ways that I tell myself I have to do something that I don't want to do? And like, where does that voice come? And that is ultimately the way I relate to myself. And just as we, you know, have shared about before in other conversations, like there, there comes a time when the body starts to revolt and she's like, "Mm, actually you can't do that anymore. So you have to figure out a new way to be in relationship to me or else I'm going to be sick. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Can you go deeper into that concept? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Give us some examples for yeah. those of us listening that are not a hundred percent sure what you might be saying. Yes. Um, so let me think of an example. Okay. okay. So I've had, uh, I had a job when I was, uh, well, actually, let me talk about my teaching job. So before I kind of went through a really deep awakening and started doing healing work, I was a teacher. And it was really challenging to, to work with 13-year-olds all day in Los Angeles and all of the things they're going through. And new teachers are under-resourced and underpaid and all kinds of other things under-supported by our society. And um, there were like really strong habits I had about needing to be perfect about the way I was showing up at work. Well, as a teacher, if you need to be perfect, if you have ideas about I have to have everything graded on Monday morning and everything has to be perfect and my students have to be like perfectly in line, um, it can make you not sleep. It can make you like not eat, not take care of yourself, not exercise, not go to the gym, whatever it may be. And at some point along the line, your body starts to get really sick. Like the body starts to actually um, speak to us through the language of sensation and illness. And so I think in the first couple of years of my teaching journey, there was a lot of sickness for me. And I had to really have a conversation of like, okay, how do I do this differently? How do I not have these ideas and concepts of perfection? How do I let go of needing my students to act a certain way and instead learn how to be fully present with them as they are and to change those energetic habits so that my body wasn't so stressed out and that she could actually find a way to thrive? Is that a good example? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It actually makes me think a lot of like Joe Desponza's work. Mm-hmm. And how he talks about how our our thoughts and our stress and all of the things that we're dealing with in our all of the things we're experiencing in our in our life and possibly not dealing with effectively mm-hmm. can m- physically manifest into cancer into mm-hmm. other types of different types even just like the common cold mm-hmm. um, or the flu or just getting sick that when we're in that stressed out state right like our sympathetic nervous system is activated. Therefore our body can't fight off illness. And so illness just manifests physical Mm -hmm. illness. 
And so we can, if we look at it introspectively and reflectively, we can see that as our body talking to us, as our body being like, yo, how you're showing up in life, how you're dealing with things, how you're plowing through, how you're being a perfectionist, how you're not dealing with the stress at your job or in your relationship or whatever is resulting in the physical body breaking down and you're not taking care of like the mental, emotional, energetic stuff. And this is how we're getting your attention Mm -hmm. is the physical body starts to break down. Totally. And this is ultimately how she's like our greatest ally, you know? And as we get into like, right, because the sickness says, Hey, something in your life has to change something in your mind, your, your body, your spirit has to change. But what's really cool is as you, as we go through the process of healing, like she can become a teacher in a different way, which is that she no longer, she meaning our bodies needs to teach us through physical pain, but she can actually begin to teach us through pleasure and through desire and through joy you know, because when we learn to be at peace with our bodies and to be at peace with the sensations of our bodies, all of a sudden our rich tapestry of the human experience arises. Like we're no longer living the human experience through the mind, but we're living the human experience through sensory awareness of all of these amazing things. And she can begin to teach us a whole new set of things, (laughs) which mine also has done over the course of my own healing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that it's interesting because we live in a society that I feel like tells us to suppress our pleasure, Mm -hmm. you know, even just with like, you know, making emotional eating bad of like you eat a piece of chocolate cake and it's delicious. And in theory, it could or should uh, soothe you and bring you pleasure and joy and allow you to experience Mm -hmm. something that feels really good. And then we're taught to shame ourselves Mm -hmm. for wanting to to eat the cake simply because it tastes good or something like that, you know? Yes. Our society is crazy. (laughs) We're confused. There's a lot of confusion here right now. Confusion. Yeah. Yeah. So you had briefly touched on, you had said that after your eating disorder, you went on to struggle with drug and alcohol addiction. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about like why you went, you think that you went from one to the other or why you dealt with both and how do you think they're related to your personal experience growing up or to trauma per se? Yeah. Um, I mean, my eating disorder really served me for a number of years growing up until I was of age to drink. And it's strange because like I never drank in high school. I had this really bizarre, um, so many bizarre like ticks in the consciousness, (laughs) but I had this really strange um, thing of like, I'm too good to drink. Like, I'm not going to be a drinker, but instead I'm like, you know, throwing up in the bathroom and like totally emotionally dysregulated. So I didn't start drinking actually until I was 19. And from the very first time I had a drink, I was like, oh my God, I've been waiting for that. You know, like I really just needed that drink. And so then, you know, alcoholism and eating disorders really go hand in hand and they work really well together <laughs> because you, you, you're drunk, you're hungover, you're high, whatever. Then you eat a lot of food and then you just puke it all up and start over. So they really were hand in hand for me. I don't think, I think as I, as I, uh, got older, um, the eating disorder itself was just really masked because the, the alcohol, the alcohol and the opiates and the marijuana were really like numbing things. But, you know, I look back on that time in my life and, and I really think like, um, I mean, you know, there was a time in my life when it was like, every hour there was some sort of numbing agent. So it was like, wake up, we take this pill, then we do this, then we puke, then we do this, then we smoke, then we, you know, and it was like just 
you know, every hour on the hour, I had to have something. And I look back now knowing what I know about trauma and all the work I've done with plant medicine and like shamanic practices. And I, I really think about how much darkness must have been living inside me to need that amount of suppression. Like, wow, that's a, that's a lot of suppression that needed to happen in order to keep those things locked inside. So from, you know, from all of the work that I've done and the study that I've had and then the healing of myself, what I know today is that addiction isn't just a random thing that happens to people. People don't just become addicts. Um, addiction, eating disorders, violence, rage, abuse, these are all symptoms of trauma. And on a very deep, like on a very basic level, trauma is an experience that the nervous system doesn't have the capacity to hold. And so it has to numb it in order to be in the face of it. But in the wisdom traditions that I've been privileged to learn from, there's an understanding that trauma is, is a place that the soul has separated from the body. And the soul is no longer... Um, feels safe to live inside the body. And so it creates this, this actual hole, like energetically a hole. And the hole is terrifying because inside this hole of blackness is the understanding that we have been separated from what we are. And that's really scary for the consciousness to hold. And so it just fills it just fill the hole and just keep it numb. So my personal experience has been that, you know, I got, I got sober, I, you know, pretty much healed from an eating disorder, but really still had a lot of disordered behavior around codependency and still physically unwell. And so as I went through the journey of doing the deeper work to heal some of those deeper layers, um, I discovered that there's no longer any desire in me to suppress the experiences of everyday life. And that's how I know that this addiction is not just what we are and it's not just inherited and it's not something that can never be healed. It's just, um, it takes, it takes hard work to go in and a lot of courage to, to heal trauma. Mm. So I, I really love those last couple of words that you had just said of being like, it's not something we inherit and it's not something that we can't heal, which triggers two things that I hear all of the time mm -hmm. around addiction, which is it runs in the family. Mm -hmm. Like my dad was an addict, so I'm an addict as if it's like a genetic thing. And I've even like read articles making a genetic argument. And I'm really curious, based on your experience, what your, what your thoughts are around that idea of it not being inherited. And maybe you didn't mean it's not genetic. I'm, so I'm asking you, what are yeah. your thoughts on that, on someone who's like, it's inherited, or my dad was an addict, so I'm an addict. And then I'd love to follow that up with like, can we heal? Are we mm -hmm. always in a state of recovery or can we be recovered? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, great question. Have I ever shared with you the story of the rats and the garlic? No. Okay. <laughs> Sarah and I know each other beyond this space, so there's a possibility I would have actually told her that story. So what I mean, so yes, certain parts of this are inherited. Okay, so I'll give you an example. So there was a study that they did with rats and garlic, and they, um, they gave a rat a smell of garlic and they, some scientific institution, and, um, and then they gave it a shock. So the rat actually then connected the smell of garlic with trauma inside the nervous system, and it pulled away. It had a reaction to the experience. Okay. Then they bred the rat seven generations. 
the seven generations or the six generations after that initial rat did not have, had never smelled, um, had never been punished with the late, the ping, whatever, from garlic. But simply from smelling garlic, they had the same reaction as the initial rat. Okay, and they traced it all the way down to the seventh generation of rat who had never smelled garlic before, had never been pinged by the garlic, any of that stuff. And the seventh generation of rats still upon smelling garlic jumped. Wow. So this is what science is starting to understand about epigenetic memory and that the memories and traumas that our ancestors went through seven generations ago can still be affecting our experience of life. So yes, on some level, these patterns are genetic, right? They, they are, they do come like that. And if we were all raised in homes where we were like perfectly mirrored emotionally and we were taught to be emotionally regulated and there was no, um, there was no like um, dysregulation or control or manipulation or uh, codependency, um, I don't believe we would have addiction. Mm. So it really is a combination of those things. And I think science has done such a beautiful job of proving the epigenetics, but we're not really fully understanding or, or unable to fully grasp the power of healthy relationships, healthy relationship to the earth, healthy relationship to food, communal living, um, spiritual practices, and how the strength of those structures can actually transmute epigenetic memory. Mm, yeah. So this, that, that's, I'm really glad that you shared that. And that's really powerful. Um, I'd love to find that study and link it in the show notes for those listening. Okay. To the- <laughs> Um, that's really interesting because I've always really had like full transparency. I've always had an issue with this idea of it being genetic Mm. and maybe it's because it makes me feel powerless and it makes me feel like I don't have any control over my life that because addiction runs in my family, I'm just like, fuck kind of a thing, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, there is beauty in that because then it allows you to see that like, oh, you're not actually broken, that maybe you've inherited Mm -hmm. something. And that you have the ability to heal yourself and in theory, stop it from healing future generations or your offsprings, which brings me to that concept of like ancestral healing that I hear all of the time in Mm -hmm. the spiritual space and in the spiritual healing circles. Is that kind of what that means? Yeah. Yes. And I do without a doubt believe we can heal. Like I do, I do, I have seen it in myself. I mean, I really, um, had a really bad addiction, like almost died many times. And I don't have those energies in me anymore. I don't have the tendency towards that. And it's become very refined at this point where I can like actually notice like, ah, there's that line of energy that goes to the sugar, or there's that line of energy that goes to the want to check out. And I have the capacity now through what I've cultivated and the work that I've done and the work that my family's done and like the speaking of the truth and the bringing all of it into the light that it just doesn't hook anymore. It's like I'm there. If I wanted to, I could hook back into it, but I absolutely believe we can heal. And um, yes, we're healing all the time. <laughs> like our what we know is so different than what our great grandmothers knew, mm-hmm. and. 
our freedom and our expression is so much more than what they knew. So we're healing all the time and we're just starting to become aware of how to do it consciously. Um, and I think that there's a, an importance in knowing where we come from, you know, knowing that we have remnants of this ancestral wound or this ancestral room, but ultimately like we are the transmuters in our everyday third dimensional human lives of whatever our ancestors did carry. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then that, that, so we can heal. Yes. And does that mean that we're always in a state of recovery then that there's always going to be healing? Because if those energy lines are still there, the, 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 the draw to, to check out, to numb are still there. And obviously the, the, the work in my opinion, or what Gabby Bernstein calls the miracle is when you notice those lines of energies, you notice the triggers, the urge, you witness them and you work through them as opposed to reacting to them and letting them sort of like take over. Mm -hmm. So does that mean we're always in a state of recovery and we always have to be conscious and aware and paying attention and being the witness and knowing that we have that choice to act on them or we have the choice to keep moving forward towards the recovery path, the healing path? Mm -hmm. There's like two opposite things I want to say at the same time. Say them both. Okay. So number one is I think one of the hallmarks of addiction is hypervigilance. When you actually get underneath all of the addictive patterns, it's a result of hypervigilance, which comes from trauma. So I'm hesitant to say that we always have to be hypervigilant because I think that is actually just a vestige of the addiction and the, and the trauma itself. Okay, so there's that. <laughs> Number two is at some point, I think we have to understand that we are as addicts, as people in recovery, as people in the healing profession, we're not actually different from anybody else. This is not, when you get to like higher levels of the healing journey, like name one person on this planet who doesn't have a tendency towards some level of grasping or some level of, you know, something like this is, this is not unique to people on the recovery path. It's just that people on the recovery path have chosen to, to like look at it and be with it. <laughs> So I hesitate to say like, we can't ever be healed because at some point it just becomes kind of like, if it's really just that I have this tendency to like do X, Y, and Z, is that really that big of a deal? Or can I just acknowledge that perhaps it's part of the human condition and have compassion for humanity and not name it recovery anymore? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see the, I see both sides. Like, and I also see that it's not unique that, that as humans, like you said, it could just very well be part of the human experience, part mm -hmm. of like what our creator, whatever you believe, God, mm -hmm. universe, source, whatever, just like had in, had in store for us of yeah. that you were, you were always going to have these tendencies to want to check out, to numb, to not deal, to suppress, whatever. And, and that they're, they're always there and that doesn't mean anything about you having them arise doesn't mean that you're broken or that you're sick or that you're still caught up in your addiction. It just means that you're having a human experience and the growth is that when you witness them, you get to choose. 
Yeah. And I mean, this is like the reason I know this is part of the human condition and not like when we get to these higher levels, right. Where we're not actively like acting out alcoholism or eating disorder is like, there are like the entire Buddhist tradition, the entire meditative practice and pathways of the Buddhist tradition is designed to help the human mind with grasping. It's natural for the human mind to grasp for things, to make it feel better, to, to grasp onto an idea, to grasp onto a relationship, to grasp onto something, to try to find peace and ground. So if an entire religious or spiritual, not, not religious, tradition was created to help the human mind with grasping, then I know that it, didn't, it wasn't just because addicts were the only ones who were grasping. <laughs> and and um and yeah i mean i think the reason that's part of the human condition is because in these third dimensional bodies we are separate from our understanding of ourselves as source energy like when we enter into the density of this particular place when there's we're in bodies like we feel separate from life like life's here and i'm here and for me, the whole healing journey and what's helped me to start letting go of the grasping is to remember that life lives in me. I've never been separate from life. So how do I open my body as a channel to hold and to process and to be with more of life at every, at every step? Mm. Instead of grasping something because you think you're not one. Exactly. Right. Right. It's that separation mm-hmm. or the illusion of separation, I suppose. The illusion, of separation. <laughs> the illusion of separation is what I'm getting here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I think like I'm what's, you know, I have to own up to some shit because through this conversation and through conversations that I've been sort of having behind the scenes and, and paying attention to other people's work around addiction is I've had a pretty hard stance on this podcast of being like, I don't believe in always in a state of recovery. It sounds disempowering. And I've talked openly about how I believe that full recovery is possible, but like, I don't identify with having an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Me saying that I'm a, I'm, I'm, um, that I'm a recovering bulimic feels inauthentic. Like when I hear people say I'm a recovering alcoholic and they haven't drinking in 20 years, I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me but I'm, it's starting to make sense. Mm. Right. Like listening to you speak, I've been paying a lot of attention to Gabby Bernstein and, and it's like, I, I'm getting the perspective more or I'm getting the, why someone would say you're always in a state of recovery, mm. why it's a, a nonstop path of healing, but, and it doesn't have to be disempowering. I mean, and even in saying that, and even in opening myself up more to this perspective, I still don't identify with being a recovering bulimic. Like the mm. thought of me going back there, just in my brain, I'm like, no, I wouldn't. And it's because I have the tools or because I've done so much healing work or because I've looked at why I was doing that to begin with. So why would I need to go back there? Mm-hmm. I'm curious of what you say to that. Well, I think it's, I think the thing that I'm always interested in is like, what are the parts of you that, that don't want to identify with that? What do you make that mean about you? And then, so like energetically, I'm always like, ooh, like how does the soul find peace? You know, how do we, 
what do we have to let go of so that we could actually say, yeah, like I was a bulimic, I am in recovery, I'm always on a spiritual journey. That was my particular flavor of grasping. But I think it's like it's 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 a really interesting conversation in recovery circles of like. I think there's a lot of fear that lives that if I say I'm recovered, that I'll forget somehow. And I just know that's not true. <laughs> like if we are fully living a spiritual life, um, an embodied spiritual life in service of, yeah, like our growth and, and the betterment of all beings around us and the planet around us, it's like, um, I, I'm not going to forget that that's what I used to be like. Um, but I also don't need to stay in a 24 hour day story about my addiction. That was a part of my journey. So I don't know. I think that's two answers at the same time <laughs> again, <laughs> but like, yeah, looking at the parts of us that are afraid or that, that resist identifying, you know, and then, and then also being in wondering of like, is it okay for us to let it go? You know, like for me, I haven't had a drink in 10 years, 10, a little over 10 years. It's like, that was a path. It was really hard and dark. It's, it's just not a part of my life anymore. Um, yeah. If I like shooed all my spiritual practices and dove into a hole and like forgot everything I'd ever learned, I'm sure I could start drinking again, but that's not what's happening. <laughs> Right. It's like you're, you're, you have this different consciousness. This is from awareness. You live your life differently yeah. and you're not. And when, when do, when issues arise, when conflict arises, when you experience pain, cause that's inevitable, regardless of the spiritual path or the healing you've done, the experience pain, new things arise. And it's like, but we have these new tools, these new, new awareness. Yeah. So it's like we deal with them differently. We don't. So yeah, I like, I don't know if there's one right answer, right? I don't think either one is right or wrong. And, but I think that I, I want to soften my stance because I've been like very, very fixed And those listening. If you've listened to the podcast, you've heard me have a very fixed attitude about it. And, you know, and I'm, I'm simply sharing this on the podcast for those listening to see that like I'm growing and I'm learning and I am looking at the parts of myself that don't want to identify. Because I know that there's something there for me to to uncover. Yeah, I mean it's very vulnerable. It's very it's very vulnerable to to say, um, yeah, there are parts of me that didn't know how to to process the human experience. Like dark things, scary things happened. I didn't know what to do. Um, I think because our society has this stigma, it's like we we stigmatize addiction. And so even for someone to identify as an addict is stigmatizing. And it's so funny because it's like some addicts are some of the only people actually standing up and being like, I carry a piece of the darkness. <laughs> like so many people carry pieces of the darkness, but addicts who are in recovery in any capacity are some of the only ones who are standing up and taking responsibility. Um, but I think it, it bears just noting that, um, you know, addiction and eating disorders have this like dirty, shameful energy around them. And, um, and so, yeah, it makes sense to me that you are in a process of being able to talk about it and own it and integrate it. 
Hmm. Well, I own it. I have a whole podcast talking about the fact <laughs> that I had it, right? But it's like it's like the always in a state of recovery piece, or like mm-hmm. identifying with being an addict still is the piece where I'm like, mm-hmm. where maybe like my ego is like, nah, we're good, you know. Like, it, there's more for me to uncover. But I, I want to touch on what you had said about how, you know, we, uh, so many of us go throughout society pretending as if everything is fine. We brush, you know, it's like I envision a picture of like this family with like the perfect house, the perfect family with the perfect dog, with the picket white fence and like everything seems perfect from the outside. But little do you know, they're just brushing so much shit under the rug, pretending like everything is okay. Mm-hmm. It's not. And so I feel like that family represents the people in our society who don't want to admit to having some of the darkness or having trauma. And, and I don't blame them or, or even shame them. I think I want to observe it. You know, it makes me think of the book uh, by Bernie Brown. I thought it was just me, but it's not about how we hide this stuff mm-hmm. and we just like keep it together and we get like, we get smaller and smaller as our shame gets bigger and bigger as we try to hide what we're dealing with. And she talks about all different types of situations um, that we hide and pretend like aren't, aren't there, like all types, like having, um, um, like homophobia, having uh, sexual abuse, like rape, incest, uh, like eating disorders, addiction, drug addiction, like having a, like having a family member that you're ashamed of all of these things that we pretend don't exist from the outside because we don't want to be seen as having a piece of the darkness because then that means something about us as people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There was a part, there's like reminded me this memory that came forward of in the years that I was spending in Peru. And, um, and I've had a, a ceremony where I really, I really owned that I had been a carrier of the darkness, despite all of my <laughs> opinions about myself. And not that I'm only a carrier of the darkness, right? Like we're all things, but when we've repressed part of the consciousness, we, we don't identify with that. And that's how things get rotten and stuffed under the rug and then they rot and, And I remember just being like, wow, man, like, what does it mean that despite all of my good intentions and all of my, the things I think I am, that I too am a carrier of the darkness? Mm. And what freedom does that give to me to relate to other people in different ways? Mm. And what freedom does it give to all of us to just be like, yeah, like, part of being on planet earth is about being a carrier of the darkness and transmuting it Um, or not even transmuting it, learning to love it, (laughs) learning to accept it. So yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Well, it makes me just think of, of humbling to it, of just of humbling to it, you know, of, 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 like you said, loving it instead of turning your back towards it and pretending like it's not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd actually love to, to shift into talking more about Peru and ayahuasca. So, um, you know, like I mentioned in the intro, I went to Peru, Jane was hosting a women's retreat and drank ayahuasca with when ayahuasca is a plant medicine, um, that you've worked with extensively over the years. So can you just share with us a little bit about like, how has spirituality and plant medicine like ayahuasca played a role in your healing? Mm. And how do you find it? 
<laughs> uh, um, it's trendy as shit right now, but it wasn't when you probably started working with it. <laughs> not trendy four years ago or five years ago. Um, I, I found ayahuasca. Um, I had been through a period of deep grief and loss. I was dealing with an autoimmune disorder. And at the same time, I was experiencing a profound spiritual awakening and um, being able to predict events and having spirit come into my room at night. And I was just really in a, a, a time of great opening. And I had decided to quit my job and to travel around the world in search of what was happening to me. Like, what is this? And so I had already planned to go to India and I remember I was figuring out where else I felt called to go. And I was watching a documentary one night and I found, um, I think it was the sacred science, but it may have been something else. And I was like that, <laughs> I was like that, that's what I'm supposed to do. And, um, and so I did. And so I went to Peru for the first time and drank medicine. And from the moment I, I drank my first cup of medicine, I knew my life would never, ever be the same because I remembered. And I remembered what it was like to communicate intuitively with my soul and with um, the world around me and with the mystery. And, um, and my life has never been the same. I, um, yeah. What else can I share about that? Um, what these medicines have given me and is, uh, I mean, they're just giant mirrors. You know, I think that the human condition is to live in a bit of a sleepness, like not full awareness of who and what it is and in not full awareness of its shadow and, and not really being able to see a lot of times the parts of us that are blocking us from our, our fullest expression. Um, or even if we can see them, we don't know how to deal with them. And the medicines are just like this giant mirror. I mean, they're a hard teacher, you know. It's, it's not like some beautiful teacher, <laughs> like showing you the amazing things about you. It's just like sitting yourself in front of a giant mirror and entering into an altered brain state and looking at all of the parts of you that stop you from, from being yourself. So, I mean, I really feel like for three years of my life, I was just on this, this like journey of looking at all of my brokenness. It was just like, look at all your brokenness. This is all your brokenness and, um, and all your light too. I mean, there are plenty of moments when, but there was a while there where it was really just my brokenness. And, at some point I, I got tired of it. And that's when my ceremony started to change because I stopped being afraid of myself. Mm. And I stopped being afraid of the darkness that lived in me and the light that lived in me. And I stopped trying to run away from who I was. And as soon as I started to find that inner strength and that inner focus and that inner resolve, um, everything changed for me and I've rewired neural pathways and helped other people to remember how to do the same. And now I live in a state, um, that's very different than I was before. And it also comes along, I should say, with a lot of really good integration work. This medicine, I've discovered the longer I worked with it, that it was not just the medicine itself that was able to do this work. It was also the help of skilled professionals and integration specialists 
somatic experiencing practitioners who could help me make meaning of looking at all the brokenness and figure out how to bring myself back into wholeness. Mm-hmm. So you had said prior to finding it, you had had an, an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. I remember you mentioning to that when we were sitting in Peru by the fire, but I, I had forgot. Can you share with us? Do you, what do you think that your medicine work? Mm -hmm. Do you still have your autoimmune disease? I guess is my question. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the the medicine work helped you manage it, heal it, rid your body of it? I do still take a small amount of medication for my autoimmune disease. Um, It is 90% better than it was when I was in the worst of it. Um, I mean, it was so bad for me that I had to like delay part of my graduate school. I had to, um, I had like emergency room visits and all kinds of doctor. I mean, it was really, it was really hard in, in the worst part of it. So I feel like, I'm healthier than most people. <laughs> like my doctor, the last time I, she saw my blood work, she was like, Jane, you're, you're so healthy. You're so healthy. Um, what it, the medicine can do is it, it showed me the parts of my consciousness, my energy body, my awareness that allowed that disease to manifest in my body in the first place. So autoimmune disease, I think we're coming to discover um, is about a disconnection from the earth. It's about a disconnection from um, our tribes, our communities. And it's also about a way that um, we internalize darkness that is not ours. Um, autoimmune literally means that an, a foreign, like in a normal immune system, a foreign body invades the system and the immune system attacks it. It protects it and sends it back out of the body. So this is like in terms of um, multidimensional healing, this is about protection. This is about holding boundaries. This is about our capacity to say, that's your darkness, not mine. You're not allowed in here. I am a sovereign being. And I didn't have any capacity to do that because of what had happened to me in my, in my younger years. So I had really horrible boundaries. Um, I was an addict, like all kinds of foreign stuff entering my body. And over time, my body, instead of attacking outside things, it began attacking myself. So the medicine helps us to see all of that and to notice the energetic patterns and habits we have of allowing people to enter into the body and then making it our fault. And um, so (laughs) what I've also learned with medicines is they're not miracles. They're not like if you have stage four advanced cancer, it's not going to just cure your, your disease. Sometimes physical disease has entered too far into the third dimension to be ever fully reversed. Um, but I know that my autoimmune disease is not a problem. Like the tiny bit that's the left, like I'm perfectly happy to live with for the rest of my life. And you know, I've made an acceptance that it had to come to that point in order for me to be willing to do the spiritual and emotional work necessary to become whole again. 
Mm, yeah, for it not to continue to progress. Right. But in a sense, to regress and be something that you can live with mm-hmm. peacefully. And, and, you know, and, and thank God for, for Western medicine that helps you with that last little bit that's still there. Totally. And I mean, let's say like if I wanted to go do a bunch of tree diets in the Amazon, perhaps it would reverse fully. I don't know, <laughs> but I'm okay with where it is right now. <laughs> cool. cool. Right. You've done enough dietes for the time being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I want to touch on one thing that you had said, you had said that like, it's not like this, I don't know the exact words, but it's like working with ayahuasca and plant medicines in a ceremony space. It's like, it's not like fun per se. Mm-hmm right? You're not popping a molly at EDC, dancing your face off in fuzzy boots. You know what I mean? Like it's not the same thing. So I, can you share with those of us who are not familiar with the concept of plant medicine or who maybe think that plant medicine, that it's just a bunch of drug use or a bunch of like hippies from Burning Man drinking ayahuasca. Like, can you talk about why it is a medicine and why it should be respected and, and treated with regard and why it's not just another party drug per se. Mm -hmm. I think that it's easy to assume that granted sitting in ceremony with ayahuasca, like it's not a party at all. Like Mm -hmm. it's definitely like you're sitting down with in a ceremony, but can you talk about like why it is a medicine? Mm -hmm. Um, so these, these, these plants are, are a class of medicines that we call entheogens. And when they first kind of came onto the scene, when they first came into awareness of the Western mind, probably back in the 1950s and 1960s, when people started going down to Mexico and working with psilocybin, um, and then ultimately down to Peru and working with ayahuasca and wachuma, um, it was a profound period then of like, of like psychedelic is what they called them then psychedelic exploration and the human consciousness and, and becoming psychonauts, which means like voyagers into the human mind and the human psychology. Um, but as, as we kind of grew and as an understanding of what these medicines were doing continued to grow, we, summed, we now call them entheogens. So entheogen, so a hallucinogen, helps us to see something that isn't there, right? If we're hallucinating the ideas that we're seeing something that isn't there, whereas an entheogen is a specific type of medicine that allows us to see what's already there that we can't see because of our conditioning. So um, yes, there are people who are using mushrooms and wachuma and ayahuasca outside of ceremonial space who are, you know, going to parties and raves and drugs and getting high. And to me, that's a grave disservice to a very sacred spiritual tradition. Um, They're not drugs. (laughs) Um, They are sacred plants that have been passed down for thousands of years through indigenous communities around the world. They come from very specific lineages. There's a way that they're used in ceremonial context and they help human beings to remember their divine nature. They help human beings to see and understand all the ways they have separated themselves from the holiness of source. Um, So I think um, it takes a firsthand experience with them to understand that. And, um, and that's really all there is to say, you know? Mm. Okay. So you've mentioned a few times about divine holiness, spirituality, 
the illusion of separation, all of these things. So what does having a connection to a higher power and whatever those of you listening choose to call it, universal intelligence, God, spirit, source, the divine, holiness, whatever. Why do you think that that's so important? Why does it help us stay on a recovery path, not revert back to our addictions to our coping mechanisms? Why is it so important that we wake up to spirituality or to consciousness or to our oneness? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's so many layers of things. I think, first of all, it's there are people for whom this is the path, you know, and not everybody on this planet is here for this. <laughs> so um, I think when it arises in our lives is the moment to begin the relationship. Like I, I think even the act of, of the desire for seeking is the arrival of that energy in, in our lives. Um, I had a profound, my very first really deep spiritual experience was when I needed to get sober. And I, um, I had a dear friend who arrived to come see me. I was working in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and I had a friend who arrived to come see me and I was so hungover that I couldn't keep water down. And she sat me down outside and she said, Jane, um, I need to tell you something. She said, you're an alcoholic. And if you don't get sober, you're going to kill yourself or somebody else. This thing happened, which I was just totally intervention from my higher self source, whatever you want to call it, where it was like this flash opened and it was like a portal opened. And I saw a picture of myself at 80 years old in this timeline that I was living on. And I was like 80 years old on the front porch of a house, drinking a fifth of Jim Beam by myself on a rocking chair. And it was the first time that I really saw what was happening to me and who I was. And I think we need that perspective. I think when we live inside our small selves and when we lack the, the perspective of the perfection of the light and dark and the perfection of life and death and the perfection of the pain and the pleasure. And it's dark and it's lonely and we're separated. And our culture specifically in the Western world um, is really separate. <laughs> like we're just, we live in separate houses. We live in separate lives. We, we are separated. Most of us are separated from our creativity. Like it's just, a lot of separation and it's depressing like we're not supposed to live like that so I think there's something about reconnecting into an authentic spirituality which helps us to remember the greater nature we are the greater perspective of the whole human condition the greater reasons we're here um, and it, it just connects us back to a desire to to live <laughs> like it's a desire to be alive um, of gratitude, appreciation, you know, especially shamanic earth-based wisdom practices. There's a deep level of like appreciation and connection with the earth. Um, so it just makes meaning. It provides meaning to the human, the human condition. Mm, yeah. And I think that it would allow you to like feel real joy. Mm -hmm. 
real pleasure, real happiness, real gratitude, like a real desire to be alive, I think that it actually allows you to experience aliveness mm-hmm. and not just like waking up and going through the motions every day, like waiting to die. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to ask you, you had said something in the beginning of you're like, not everybody's here for this. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is on this planet to have this awakening or to have um, this connection. Can you tell me more about that? Like the ego in me wants to be like, shake them and wake them up, you know? Like the egomaniac in me is like, you're doing it wrong. So I'd like to hear what you have to say, your words of wisdom. So I felt like that for a long time too. And then I realized that that was just a part of me from my childhood trauma that hadn't yet been fully integrated. And what I mean by that is, as a young person, I learned that the way for me to feel safe was to control what other people were doing. And as I grew on my personal journey, I realized that I could be safe no matter what other people were doing. And that actually when I come from a place of saving, um, it is detrimental to me. And that it's very misguided and oftentimes oppressive or um, dismissive or controlling versus when I just dropped into this is who I am. I'm here to awaken. I'm here to reconnect to life. I'm here for creativity. I'm here for joy. I'm here for the hardship. Like I'm here for this. And guess what? Not everybody is like, I'm, I'm not under any delusion that I'm going to go wake up the insurance agent who is 75 years old. Like it's just not my job. And who's to say there's something wrong with him, but that's not what he's here for right now. You know, what I am here for is the people who are also on this journey and it makes it so much more joyful and it makes it so much more less grasping Mm. and less controlling when I, when I reach that particular perspective. Hmm. Okay. So what's coming up for me is like, but are we leaving people behind? Are Mm. we separating ourselves from them? Um, I am no longer under any delusion that I can affect, like change someone else's life or choices. So if they are here for it, then I am here for it. I can share like in this podcast, right? I can go online and publicly share my story and I can share it with a lot of love and without attachment to whether anyone receives it and changes or doesn't change, but just like transmitting the frequency of truth into the atmosphere. Like I can do that. I'm here for that. Um, When I'm, I've been in times in my life when I was like crusading (laughs) And it's like not fun and it's just not my responsibility, nor does it work. <laughs> so that's actually probably more true. Like I just reached a point in my life where it, it, I realized it doesn't work. It's an old energy that isn't helpful. It doesn't work. And so the, the more serving use of my life force is actually by creating beautiful things beautiful experiences, creating retreats and music and poetry and workshops and connections and places for people to be in remembrance. That's like a magnet rather than a crusade. Mm, Yeah. Like going out there and trying to like 
grab people and like force them to see the light. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. That, that makes a lot of sense. And like, you're right. Like it doesn't really work. Yeah. That that other way, you know, (laughs) it's not nearly as effective as someone finding it and being magnetized and being drawn on their own accord and of their own free will to come. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's dive into some of our rapid fire wrap up questions. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Not all rapid fire. This one might be a little bit more deep, but what is one of the lessons you've learned in the past year that you could share with us? Oh man. (laughs) Like what happened in the last year? Um, Gosh, Kara, I I could write a book about it, but I'll be, (laughs) I'll, I'll pick one. Um, I think one of the lessons I've been learning here in this, I just moved into a house. So for our listeners, I just, I traveled around the world for three years and I've just settled about four months ago in my home down in Alabama, which I never thought I would ever live here. And I think there's been so many lessons from being here, but one of the first ones is just about the sacredness of the everyday. And when I was traveling and learning and working, sitting in ceremony and receiving rites and you know, doing all of that, there was a way that I really projected or I needed to at the time. It was really important to find the sacred in those places. And I can remember when I finally got clarity that I was supposed to move here um, and live in in this house that I'm living in, there was a poem that came through. um, And the gist of the poem was like, what if devotion is nothing spectacular? What if devotion isn't going to make you famous? What if devotion to the path isn't going to make you money? What if devotion to the path isn't like Instagram worthy? You know, what if devotion to the path is as simple as sitting in a house praying over everything you do and singing to the birds and sweeping your floors as a prayer. Mm. And then think about how meaningful life is that we don't have to go anywhere other than where we are to receive the infusion of the sacred. And, um, and that's been the real lesson for me. I think of being here is just like, there's nowhere else to go. Like it's, it's all here. And so how do I train my eyes to see the sacredness and to see the lessons and the teachings in the everyday life of, you know, seeing clients, making waffles, um, feeding my birds. Mm, yeah. It makes me think of the power of now. Mm-hmm. How uh, Eckhart Tolle, I'm reading that book right now. I'm only like 19 pages in, yo, so I like haven't gotten the full, <laughs> you know, haven't fully learned what I need to learn. But even just within the first thing, he actually really talks about how real presence is that is divinity, is connection, is is connection to source, is just being really present. So, the lesson you've learned, can you sum it up for us? Because the lesson I've learned is about the sacredness of the everyday and about the the meaning and devotion that's available right here right now you don't have to go to peru to get it and um yeah yeah you don't have to go to peru to get it that's beautiful you can get it every day you can get it by being present with life Mm -hmm. sacredness of washing dishes you know Yeah. yeah yes what is it your favorite quote um, okay. I was looking this up last night. I have so many, but okay, we'll share a few if you want. <laughs> well, okay. The one that I, I usually use for situations like this is one of my favorites by a poet named William Stafford. And he says in one of his lines of his poems, 
I have made a parachute out of everything broken. And I do feel like that has been the experience of my life is the willingness and the courage to take all of the brokenness and to weave it into this beautiful tapestry of fabric to carry me through the wind, you know? So that's one of my favorites. Mm, I love that. That is very beautiful. Yeah. And And it creates a very beautiful picture in my mind, like very lovely imagery. Yeah. Right. I think that's why I like it too. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, there's so many, but that's a really good one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm a self-proclaimed quote whore. I'm like, I collect <laughs> them. You know what I mean? I'm like, give me your quotes. <laughs> um, okay. Words of wisdom for your 18 year old self. Oh my God. Oh, oh poor, poor 18 year old Jane. <laughs> um, I think I would have, I think, gosh, if I could teleport myself back to her, I would just probably hug her and just be like, you're so beautiful. You're so worthy. You know, let me, let me sit beside you while you be in your pain and your fear and your confusion and um, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. This has been amazing. Hey. You. You're my teacher. You're my mentor. And I know that a lot of people got a lot out of this episode as well. Where can everybody find you? <laughs> Social media. Um, I'm on Instagram at Jane is listening. And my website is janeislistening.com. And those are the best places to find me. We have SoundCloud and YouTube and all that. But you can access all of that from the website. Yeah, I'll put all of the links in the show notes so that people who want to learn more and who want to hear your music. Yeah. Yeah, we, I, uh, Jane, I've had the privilege of being in many different spaces in person and online where Jane sings and shares her, her voice with us, um, which is incredible. Is your album done? Is it out? Yeah. Okay, great. I will leave a link for that. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, you're singing your SoundCloud. I'll have to leave the link for that as well. Um, yeah, thank you for everything that you shared today, Jane. Any last things you'd like to add that we didn't touch on? No, I have so many. I mean, there's 80,000 directions. We can always take it, but I'm just really grateful for you. And I know um, I have the pleasure of knowing Kara and having hugged her and spent so much time with her in person. So everyone listening can know that she's a really beautiful being as beautiful as she appears in the podcast. <laughs> and I'm just really grateful for the beautiful work you do. I think, um, you have such courage to, to speak the stories of, of the darkness of eating disorders and food addiction into the light. And this world is a better place for it. So thank you for being you. Thank you. I'll receive that. Yeah. thank you for being thank you Kara love you wait don't go yet I just wanted to remind you that you still can pre-order my cookbook vegan buddha bowls if you have been following me on Instagram and my blog and you uh, love the recipes that I post and you love the food that I post and you think it looks delicious then you are going to love my new cookbook I just got my author copies in the mail this week and it's really cool and exciting to look at them and to flip through this book oh my god it became so much more real when I when I got the book in the mail so 
you can pre-order that. There's tons of links in the show notes. There's links in my story on Instagram at Kara's Kitchen, Kara with a C, Kitchen with a K, or you can go to my blog, Kara'sKitchen.net, and there are the links there as well. And if you loved this podcast, please share it with someone in your own life who would benefit from hearing it from the message that we talked about. And if you also feel called, please leave a ratings and review on iTunes or share it in your Instagram stories. That is the best way to give back to the podcast and to help it keep going. So thank you so much. Happy new year. I hope you're having an amazing day and I will see you guys next week. Mm -hmm.